And uh, thanks, Lee and Kathy and Carrie. It's fun. Kathy and Carrie are both going to be on the leadership team helping to put Alpha on. They went through it in the fall, and now they're going to help put it on. And I'm really excited about them being a part of that. And just the whole team that we formed, there's this great group of people uh, that are excited about loving people, talking about Jesus, and having fun together for the next few months on Wednesday night. So again, really encourage you to make some invites and hopefully come out starting this Wednesday. Uh, but today, we are going to be starting our new sermon series for the fall and beyond in the book of Exodus, Out of Egypt, we are calling it. So go ahead and grab a Bible and open it up to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. Again, the book of Exodus, chapter 1. If you need a Bible, there are some of the seats in front of you. If you want to follow along on your phone or device, however you need to find Exodus 1, go ahead and do that. It's at almost the very beginning of the Bible. It's only the second book in the Bible, so it's really close to the start there. And let's, let's be honest for a moment. Some of you coming in are, like Darren, excited about the sermon series, walking through the book of Exodus. You're excited about jumping in to this Old Testament book of the Bible. You're excited about studying it. Maybe you were at the movie night last night and you watched the Prince of Egypt with us, and you got pumped up to look at the life of Moses and see what God was doing in Exodus. And don't worry if that's you, the book is better than the movie, as it always is. So this is going to be a good experience. But maybe some of you are here this morning, and you're not that excited about studying the book of Exodus. Or you're a little bit confused, saying, why in the world, in 2019, are we studying this Old Testament book of the Bible that was written thousands and thousands of years ago with events that took place thousands and thousands of miles away. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, frankly, Pastor, I'm not that worried about Pharaoh and Moses and ancient Egypt because I have enough things going on in my life to worry about. There's a lot of current issues that we should be thinking about or that are pressing on me and my life. Things that maybe seem more relevant to today. I mean, let's be honest, a lot's happening in our world today. Taylor Swift just released a new album this week. Okay? Big things are happening. There's rumors from time to time about a worldwide coffee shortage. Uh, avocados are really expensive, right? There's all kinds of things that we need to talk about today. I joke, of course, about those things, but we know, right? We look at the news and there are big issues happening in our world. Things like racism and gun violence and mass murder and abortion and crazy things happening that we need to talk about and think about as Christians. And so why Exodus? I'd rather hear a sermon series, frankly, on dealing with my stress or on engaging in the world around me or how do I be a better parent or face my fears or love my neighbors or deal with loss or relationships. There is something that's a little bit more relevant to my life. Those are all good questions and important things that we should be talking about and thinking about, but I would argue that what we need more, we need more than, than temporary life tips and advice. What we need more than that is a clear picture of who God is. Amen. What we need the most is a clear picture of who God is is. And see, sometimes we have this assumption, many in the world have this assumption that as society becomes more and more modern, more 
technologically advanced that the need for God will be less and less and people will uh, be less and less likely to search for God or want to find God and yet we find that the opposite is actually true, that still today more and more people are searching. They want to find God. They want to connect with something out there. Even if they don't know exactly what it is, there's this longing for the, the transcendent. There's this longing for something bigger than themselves that is out there. They're searching for God. And as a church and as followers of Jesus, we are convinced that the only way, the only way we will be able to navigate life successfully in all of its complexities to have, again, a clear picture of who God is, to have a real encounter with the living God. We can learn to know God as he reveals himself to us and to the world through his word. It will change us, it will transform us, and allow us to engage in all of life differently. And so, Exodus, yes, it's an old book written a long time ago, far away from here, and yet it offers us the opportunity to do just that, to encounter God, to come to know God and meet God in his word and be changed by him and then go and live and engage in all of life differently. And so with that, that naturally gives us an opportunity to reflect on what we believe about the Bible. Before we jump in and read Exodus 1, we have to think about what is this book? What is this? And how do we approach the scriptures? Second Timothy in the New Testament tells us in chapter 3, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what is scripture? Well, all scripture is God-breathed. Maybe you've heard the term inspired. This is the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, meaning that the words that we find here in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, like the book of Exodus, we find here the very words of God. And so, yes, these books were written by human beings, human authors or the, over the course of centuries and generations. They were compiled into this book by human hands, but we believe that these are not just human words. These are not just the efforts of human beings trying to make sense of God, but rather what we see in the scriptures is God making himself known to us. So we use the word revelation. It's God revealing himself to us and to the world. Now you might have questions about that. Is that really true? Maybe you would object to those statements, but let's just be honest again. If that's not true, if this is not the word of God, then we're really, really just wasting our time here. I mean, really, if this is not the word of God, if God has not revealed himself to us, then what we find here might be some interesting history or some memorable stories or some beautiful poetry or some life wisdom. But if this is just a human work, then we don't find anything transcendent here, anything of eternal value. Anything that we frankly can't read elsewhere in philosophy or other religious works. But, if we do find here the word of God, the one true living God revealing himself to us and to the world, then we see that God speaks to us. And the words and the events that we read about, like in the book of Exodus, have meaning 
for us today, have timeless truths that God wants us to know about the world and about himself. Now you might again have questions about that, concerns about that, doubts about that, that's okay. We can talk about that. I just want you to know that again, that is the approach that we at FBC are, are bringing as we come to the text. And we should know as we get ready to jump in to Exodus, an Old Testament book that's primarily narrative, okay, it's a story, true story, true events, that there are different ways in Scripture that God reveals himself, right? Sometimes we read in the Scriptures places like the Psalms, a lot of poetry. It's poetic, vivid imagery and illustrations like Psalm 23, many of us know it, the Lord is my shepherd, Right? And then that whole psalm goes on to explain in this imagery of a sheep and a shepherd and how God cares for us. It's very poetic. Uh, it illustrates those truths in a particular way. Then we find in Scripture places that are a little more direct, uh, more prose, what we would call it. It's a type of writing style we find where, like John 3.16, Jesus says, hey, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's a little more direct, not as poetic. It's just straightforward. Here's what I'm trying to tell you about God and about the world. And then we find in the Bible, not necessarily poetry and not necessarily prose, but we find narrative, stories. A lot of the Bible contains stories, true stories, true events that actually took place in actual history, like Exodus, but it's as we read these stories and we see the, the plot and things develop and we get to know the, the characters and we see how God himself acts in history. That's how we'll learn about God through the book of Exodus. We see God move and speak and act in real time and space. And so, as we approach the book of Exodus, God's word we expect to meet with him, to hear from him to have a real encounter with the living God here today in 2019 that will change us. And so with that, let's read it, shall we? Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 says this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, with the opening words of the book of Exodus, you probably notice that we find ourselves in the middle of something. We're picking up partway through a story that has already begun, because the book opens with this list of names, this family, the sons of Israel it's talking about, and we see that they have some kind of backstory. We're supposed to, in some way, be aware of who they are and where they've come from. And let's be honest, these first few words of Exodus are probably not where you would want to turn for your morning quiet time. Like if you're sitting down in the morning and you got your cup of coffee ready and you're like, I just really want to meet with Jesus right now. And I want to open up the word of God. And I want my heart to be filled. And you turn to Exodus 1, 1, and you see this list of names. Like does that fill anyone's heart off the surface? You're like, Dan and Naphtali and Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and I thank you Lord I'm ready for my day right? none of us probably do that okay and yet and yet this list of names is actually quite important this introduction actually means something there's something here for us we see these people this family that has come down to live in 
Egypt. And what we realize, again, is that Exodus is not meant to be read in isolation. It's not an isolated book. It's actually one chapter in a bigger story. It's the second book of the Bible, and it's the second book of what's often referred to as the Torah or the Pentateuch. Okay, so the first five books of the Bible are referred to as the Pentateuch. Exodus is the second of those five books. So it's a part of this bigger chunk of Scripture that was very foundational for how the Jews in the Old Testament viewed themselves, their identity and their story and who they were and who God was. They looked to these first five books as being very foundational. And we even see that uh, the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself would look back to the Pentateuch, to the, uh, the books of Moses, as sometimes they're called, and see them as very foundational for understanding their identity and their story and who their God was. And so, in order to understand the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, we have to understand a little bit about the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, what came before it to help us understand how we got here. And so, are you ready for like a rapid flyby overview of the book of Genesis? Like really fast? Yeah? Okay. So, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God creates everything. God creates the world, the universe, everything that there is, God makes it and creates it out of nothing. He created a good world where human beings and all of life would flourish, and he made human beings, you and I, us, unique. He made us in his image, that we look more like God than anything else in the entire universe. God made us in his image that we might be stewards of God's good world. He entrusted to us the responsibility to care for the world, to see all of life, plants and dogs and trees and ducks, to help all of life flourish and reach its potential for the glory of God. But there's a turning point in the story in Genesis chapter 3. Maybe you've read it. Human beings, our first parents, fall into sin and rebellion against God. We disobey God. Adam and Eve turned from God and decided instead to do things their own way. They wanted to be the ultimate authority of right and wrong, good and evil, to do things their way. And so rather than worshiping and serving God, we again set ourselves up as our own kings, as our own authority. And this brings death and decay and devastation and sin into the world and it wreaks havoc on God's good world. And we see the effects of this still today in the brokenness of our world. But God, rather than abandoning us, chooses to work within history and with people to redeem us, to redeem and restore his good world to what he always intended it to be. And so as the narrative continues in Genesis, we see another turning point in the story in Genesis chapter 12, where God's rescue plan starts to unfold. It is he calls a man named Abram, or maybe you know him as Abraham, and he says to Abraham in Genesis 12, look at this, he says, the Lord said to Abram, or Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here it is, all 
peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and God chooses to use Abraham and his descendants and his family to be a blessing to the world, to bring redemption and hope and restoration through this family, Abraham and his sons. And so if we read through Genesis, we see that Abraham fathers Isaac, and Isaac fathers Jacob or Israel, and Jacob has 12 sons, and those are the 12 names that we read in Exodus chapter 1. Now, just a side note. Can we talk about Genesis for just a side note? If you read through the book of Genesis, you will see that the family that God chooses, Abraham and his descendants that we read about, this family of hope, this family that God is going to use to bless and save the world, is deeply flawed. I mean, if you just read through Genesis, it's, it's not a children's book, okay? It's not rated G. Seriously, if you read through it, you will be shocked by what you find, the kinds of issues that this family deals with. This would not be the family that would write books on parenting, okay? They would not be writing books on marriage or books on how to trust God. We probably wouldn't want to listen to their advice or how they go about it because we see incredible doubt. I mean, they lack faith. They are confused. They lie and deceive. There's violence and murder. There's sex scandals. I mean, Lots of sex scandals. Seriously, go read it. It's, it's crazy. You read through it and you're, it's almost, you're like, is this really the Bible? Is, is this really the Bible? And it is. It is. And here's why that's really important. We see from the very beginning that God uses broken people. God uses deeply flawed people. And so if you think that God can't use you for his plans and purposes because of how uh, sinful you are or how much sin you have in your past or in your present, think again. Please read the book of Genesis. Read the Bible because you'll see the deep flaws of the people that God chooses to use and yet we see God's continued presence. God's there. He's faithful. He is with them over and over again and his plan of salvation moves forward. Gives me a lot of hope. And so we see Abraham in Genesis 12. And then we see Isaac and we see Jacob. And then we see the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel. And in Genesis, we see Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. He goes down to Egypt. If you remember how he got there, it wasn't exactly, he didn't take an Uber or something really comfortable. He was actually sold into slavery by his brothers in the second half of the book of Genesis. He goes down to Egypt, but God redeems that situation, and Joseph actually rises to some level of power and influence in Egypt with Pharaoh. Pharaoh trusts him, and God uses Joseph to save his family and many people in the area when famine strikes. And eventually, all these brothers of Joseph, sons of Jacob, come down to live in Egypt. And it's there where Exodus 1 picks up with all these brothers named living down in Egypt. That's where Exodus starts. And then we read in Exodus 1, verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. Verse 7, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. 
They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, so Joseph and all his brothers die. All those people in Genesis we're talking about, they've all now died. But the Israelites, their people, their family, were exceedingly fruitful, the text says. Now, if you're reading that out of context, you just kind of like helicopter in to Exodus chapter 1, and it's talking about how fruitful the people of of Israel were, that would seem like a strange detail. Like the Exodus story is rolling forward and the author's like, by the way, these people had a lot of babies, they had a lot of kids, just thought you should know that. No, that's rather strange. And yet, if you know the story, right, if you're familiar with Genesis, and Genesis 12 and what God said to Abram, Abraham, you see he's answering his promises, he's keeping his promises. He told Abraham in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation. You will have many descendants. I will bless the world through you. And then God repeats the same promise. Genesis 17, it's up on the screen. As for me, this is my covenant with you, God speaking to Abraham. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. Verse 6, I will make you very fruitful. I'll make nations of you. Kings will come from you. And so... That's God's promise in Genesis, and now Exodus 1, he's keeping that promise. He's fulfilling his word. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. And look again at verse 7 of Exodus 1. Exodus 1, 7. What does it say? The Israelites were exceedingly what? Fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in number. It became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Look at how emphatic the text is. Do you see there's like four or five or six different ways of saying the same thing in verse 7? They were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in number. It's like, okay, we get it. Like, there was a lot of them. There's a lot of them. But the author's trying to say, hey, God's doing what he said he was going to do. God's faithful to keep his promises generation after generation, especially, again, if you knew the book of Genesis, that language would trigger for you. You would remember Oh, that's what God is doing. That's what God wants us to see. That's what the author of Exodus wants us to see. God is keeping his promise. And friends, we need to cling to that truth today. That God is faithful. We need to cling to that truth today. He doesn't forget his promises. He doesn't forget to fulfill all that he said he would do in his word. He's not like us. Because we don't always keep our word, do we? We're not always faithful to fulfill our promises. We say things like, I'll be there. Oh, but something came up. So I'm not going to be there. We say things like, I'll take the trash out in the morning. But then we forget. We let other people down, or we're let down by other people. We see that people don't keep their promises, but God's different. God's faithful. He does what he says he'll do. We live in a world filled with uncertainty, don't we? Uncertainty, an unknown future, fear of what the future holds. Countless unknowns are ahead for us. And we wonder, can I trust God? We wonder that. Many of us have doubts. Is God faithful? Can I believe that he'll do what he says he'll do in his word? Even in the midst of pain and loss and grief and struggle, if God says that he will work all things for good in my life, is that true? Will he? Or say, you know what, I, I, I doubt 
and I, and I struggle and I find myself in a rut spiritually and it seems like I'm not growing. It seems like God's not at work in my life. And yet in Philippians 1.6, he says that the work he began in me, he'll carry it through unto completion. Will he? Will he do that? Will he continue this work in me? Even if it seems like I'm not going anywhere, even if it seems like there's no spiritual progress in my life, will he keep his word? When he says that he'll rescue us and save us from sin and death, when he says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ that will one day stand before God and if we're in Christ, we'll be forgiven, righteous because of faith in Jesus. Is that true? Will God really forgive us? Will God really ultimately declare us righteous because of Jesus and welcome us into his presence forever? Will he? Exodus 1 reminds us he will keep his promises. He is faithful to his word to do all that he says he will do. You can trust him. And we see this with Abraham and his family in Genesis and into Exodus 1 and, of course, beyond. And so as we encounter God in Exodus, we see, first, he's faithful. He keeps his promises. But one of the other main themes that we'll see, and maybe this is a theme that you're a little more familiar with from the story, and that is that God is a rescuer. Right? God is a deliverer. God saves his people out of slavery. See, as the story of Exodus continues, it actually takes a pretty dark turn in verse 8. Right? Let's look at it together. Exodus 1, 8. Remember, Pharaoh was pretty fond of Joseph, okay? Joseph and his family were in, uh, in a good place with Pharaoh. And then, verse 8, then, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. There's a new Pharaoh. Verse 9, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies. They'll fight against us and leave the country. And so, verse 11, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. So, Pharaoh, this new king of Egypt, comes to power, and he has no connection to Joseph or Joseph's brothers or the family of Abraham, and so he enslaves the people of Israel. He puts them into slavery. These people who had multiplied, Pharaoh now oppresses them. And so the story of Exodus 1 to Exodus 15 is this miraculous story about how God is going to bring freedom and rescue to his people. How God is going to deliver them out of slavery and into freedom. And the events that unfold, they're one of the clearest pictures of the gospel that we find in the Old Testament. What we're about to study for the next few months is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel of Jesus that we find in the Old Testament. And so we have to see as we prepare for this journey that we're not just reading some ancient, remote, isolated account of slavery in Egypt in the Old Testament. Actually, this story connects to the bigger story that God is telling. It connects to the bigger story of Scripture. It connects to us and ultimately it points us to Jesus and how God rescues us through Jesus. So look with me at one text, skipping ahead a little bit to the New Testament in Romans chapter 6. It says this, when you, look at how Paul talks about us. When you 
were slaves to sin. You were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things, again, sin, result in death. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul here is explaining our spiritual condition without Jesus. The human condition is that we are, apart from Jesus, we're slaves to sin, and it leads to death. But Paul's saying the good news of the gospel is that you, in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, you've been set free from sin and death, and Jesus has brought you out of slavery. And so the exodus out of slavery in Egypt in the Old Testament is really a foreshadowing. It points us forward to the greater exodus, the greater freedom that Jesus will bring to his people. And so here's a question for us. Here's a question. When we think about Jesus, and when we think about the Bible, when we think about God, do we think that he wants to bring us freedom? Or do we think that he wants to keep us in slavery or bring us into slavery? Does Jesus want to set you free or does Jesus want to enslave you? Think about that. Because a common objection to Christianity today, what I've heard from a number of people, is that Christianity, following Jesus, it's just a straitjacket you put on yourself. It's just a list of rules. A bunch of laws you have to obey. A bunch of things you have to do. A bunch of fun things that you can't do if you're following Jesus. It's boring. It makes life joyless. And so why would you want to submit yourself to that kind of slavery? The Bible tells me what I should or shouldn't do with my money. It tells me what I should or shouldn't do with my sexuality. It tells me what I should or shouldn't do with my relationships. Why should I submit myself to that kind of slavery if that's what following Jesus is about? And so notice, notice though, the assumption under that statement. The assumption under that objection is this. I am free, and Jesus is trying to enslave me. Right? I am free, and the Bible is trying to enslave me. I don't want to be enslaved by Jesus. I want to stay free to do things how I want to do things. Right? We're Americans, right? Isn't that what we want? I want to be free to do what I want to do. But notice, notice. The assumption of the Bible, the assumption that Jesus has is the exact opposite. It's not that you're free. It's actually that you're enslaved. It assumes that we are enslaved and that Jesus wants to set us free. And so it's the opposite of what we naturally assume. See, the Bible makes the claim that if we love and serve anything more than God, it inevitably enslaves us. If something is the center of your life other than Jesus, it will enslave you. It'll make you serve it. Maybe you felt that in your own life. Felt trapped. You felt like you continue to fail. Felt like you're not able to be the person you want to be. That there's something that has this power over you. It's called sin. 
and idolatry, when we worship things other than God. And so if anything other than God is the center of your life, well, even if it's good things, like your family, like your, your kids, maybe it's things like success in the workplace, good grades in school, achievements in life, maybe it's wealth, maybe it's comfort, maybe it's a person is the center of your life. A boy or a girl, maybe it's just self-fulfillment. Maybe it's protecting your image. There's something that's the center of your life. And if it's anything other than Jesus, it will enslave you. You'll have to have it. You'll do whatever it takes to keep it. You'll have to protect it at all costs. You'll feel threatened. If it gets threatened, you get angry and bitter and fall into despair. If you lose whatever that thing is, it owns you. You're a slave to it. It dictates what you do with your time. It dictates what you do with your money. And so in our sin, we see, this is the story of Scripture, we continually do this. We continually uh, walk in slavery to things that trap us, that damage us, and ultimately, too, dishonor God, put us out of line with the holy God, leads us to death and judgment. And so the Bible says, actually, the only way to be free, the only way to truly be free and be how God intended you to be is to worship and serve God above all else. That's the only way you'll be free from those things. Then you'll be able to engage in your life without fear. See, one line that maybe you know from the book of Exodus, maybe it's because of a movie that quoted this or a song, is what? Pharaoh, let my people go, Right? I think there's even a song. Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Okay, all right, yeah. Pharaoh, let my people go. Which is a compelling line, right? God wants to bring his people into freedom. But if we look at the text, if we actually look at the book of Exodus, that's not the whole quote. It's not just, hey, let my people go. If you read into it, you see... Actually, the message from God to Pharaoh was, let my people go so that they might serve me. So that they might come and worship. So that they might come and worship me. And so freedom, as the Bible explains it, is not just like freedom from any sort of obligation. Freedom to do whatever I want. It's not just, hey, let my people go out into the wilderness so they can do whatever they want. That's not what God is calling his people to. It says, let them go so that they might worship me. And so the Bible is making this claim that if we are to be truly free, God has to be the center of our lives. God has to be the center of our worship. That's the only way we'll be free. Think with me of the uh, illustration of a fish. When is a fish free? A fish is truly free when it's in the water, right? That's how it was designed. That's where it'll be healthy. That's where it will thrive. And so if a fish were to hop out on dry land and flop around, hop out of its tank or its bowl and flop around, would it be more or less free? It'd be less free. I mean, in one sense, it'd be more free because it's broken through of the, the oppressive walls of its tank. It's broken out of that system. And yet, in a truer sense, it would not be free at all. It would die. It would 
lead to destruction in its life. It wouldn't be able to do what it was intended to do. Author Tim Keller puts it this way, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones. And freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as it is finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. And so we, like fish, we were designed for water, so to speak. We were designed to live and flourish under God's care, under God's rule and reign. That's where we will find the fullness of life that God intends for us. And it's only then when we submit ourselves to God and to Jesus and to his ways that we will find the life that God designed for us. And so, friends, as we get ready to read Exodus, we have to see that parallel. We have to see that connection that without Jesus, you and I are in Egypt. Without Jesus, we are enslaved like the people in Exodus, and only Jesus can set us free. If we are truly Christians, then we see that we were dead in our sin. We were trapped, enslaved, headed for destruction, but Jesus rescued us. Jesus defeated sin and death, and now through faith in him, we can be forgiven and freed to live in the worship of God, how he designed us to live, and that will bring true rest and true peace and true joy in our lives. Only Jesus can offer this for us. And I've experienced this in my own life. Really, if I look back at myself when I was younger, I saw how captive I was to the opinions of other people. I was enslaved to the opinions of others. Really, I desperately longed for approval for applause, for people to see me, recognize me. I lived in insecurity. I lived in fear. I lived with the pressure of trying to make something of myself. And then I met Jesus. I met Jesus early on, and it took some time, but I started to see how the gospel, how the good news of Jesus was liberating how the good news of Jesus, the love of Jesus, transformed my heart so that I saw in Christ I have everything that I need. In Christ I have acceptance, I have forgiveness of sins, I have this relationship with God, and so I can be freed from that rat race, freed from the constant pull and need to succeed and to be seen and to achieve more and more. It will never stop. But Jesus set me free from it. The gospel of Jesus sets us free like nothing else can. And I know that God wants to do that in some of your lives as well. We constantly find ourselves enslaved, trapped to sin, trapped in addictions. Even though maybe we've known the Lord, we keep finding our way back to Egypt. Even though Jesus has set us free, we have unconfessed sin in our lives. We allow destructive patterns or habits in our personal lives and in our marriage and our families continue. We can't seem to break out of them. There are ways that we are enslaved today that Jesus wants to set us free. And this happens as we understand more fully the gospel. This happens as we allow God to do his work in our hearts. We have to identify these areas of slavery, and let God do his work in us. It's not always instant, and it's not always easy. 
but God will do it. We see in Exodus 3, a little bit later, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And that's exactly what we'll see God do. That's exactly what God does for us in Jesus Christ. And so on this journey ahead, we'll see more and more the freedom that God wants to bring. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we praise you together this morning. And we confess together that sometimes we look at you and your word and it feels like slavery to us. It feels like something we don't want to do and yet we see the truth that that is a lie, that we are deceived when we think like that. And instead we see from our word that we are enslaved without you and we need you to set us free. And so Jesus, we worship you as our king, as our savior, as our liberator. We pray, God, that you would rule and reign in our hearts. You help us believe the gospel more fully. We give ourselves to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.